Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next is a podcast which covers economics, finance, politics, and the arts. I give the speaker just six minutes to make his opening argument. Today's topic is how to write a best-selling mystery novel. The speaker is my close friend, Scott Turow, who is the author of 1L and Presumed Innocent. I've asked Scott to give us a preview of his latest book entitled Suspect. I hope to learn from Scott how he thinks about constructing a novel and character development, the role of the editor, and how to do that rewriting process. And then in the post-development, how do you market a novel and sell the film rights, and ways to generate excitement about the work so that booksellers can sell it. There's so much to cover, so buckle up. I make this podcast to learn, and I offer this program free of charge to anyone that is interested. Please tell your friends about it and have them sign up to receive our weekly emails about upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe so that you can continue to enjoy this content. Okay, let us begin with Scott's opening six-minute remarks. As a novelist, I've written a series of books that are interrelated, but they're not the customary series that follows one character. These books are instead all set in the same locale, which is a fictional Midwestern city. And the characters go from the background in one book to the foreground in another, and then they retreat into the background again. The novel before Suspect was called The Last Trial, which focused on Sandy Stern, who was the defense lawyer in the movie Presumed Innocent that starred Harrison Ford. All novels are going well when there's a character who sort of runs away with the novel, who no matter how romantic it sounds, decides for herself that she actually deserves a larger role. In the last trial, that character was Pinky Stern's granddaughter, who was working as an extremely unreliable and erratic paralegal. Eventually, people were so attracted to Pinky that I decided I would give her a novel of her own. Pinky, in her own judgment, weird. She misses signals. Everybody in a room gets a joke, but her, she's never has an intuitive understanding of norms and rules, has proven to make her quite acute and as a result, an excellent investigator. Now she's become a licensed private investigator and she's working as the investigator attached to the law office of a relative Rick Dudek who's hardworking, but he's never been in the limelight the way he would like. He and Pinky think that they now have a case that will take them into the bright lights. The police chief in the small city of Highland Isle, which is across the river from Kendall County, has hired Rick as the lawyer to conduct a defense of the chief who has been charged with so-called sextortion namely soliciting sex in exchange for promotions on the police department. And this, candidly, is something happening in police departments all over the United States. There's a more unusual element. The person accused is a woman, and what she's charged with is shaking down men for sexual favors. It's been an enormous blessing to have an audience and a readership throughout my career. But it's in some ways also a burden because it's a trick worthy of Houdini to avoid being captured by that audience's expectation. 
I've always tried to push the boundaries a little bit in writing about Pinky, who's 40 years younger than I am, of a different sexual orientation, of course, a different gender. This is the first of my novels that's written entirely from the point of view of someone who is not an attorney. She's certainly well-versed in legal practice, but she's not a lawyer herself. That's the setup for Suspect. I hope it gives people an introduction to the book. In your previous novels, the characters were mostly lawyers, prosecutors, judges, and their spouses. They were well-educated and lived within upper-middle-class social norms. That is not the case of the cast of characters in your new book, Suspect. Why did you choose to write about members of a lower social class? Pinky. She doesn't have a lot of money. She was raised in the suburbs in a sort of affluent setting. That's just not going to be her life. And she knows that without any regret. She doesn't have a big dream of owning a house or anything like that. She sees herself as somebody who'll always work for a living. And she doesn't seem to care very much about material things. So you're right. She's much more working class than anybody I've ever written about before. Next topic is the use of a book series. My first experience with a series of novels goes back to the summer before sixth grade when I read all 110 of the Hardy Boys series. These characters would never grow or seemingly learn from any of their previous adventures. Each book was a separate mystery to be solved without any character development. And this is not true of your novels. We meet your characters in each novel, and they've gained from their previous experiences. Why did you decide to give your characters the benefit of personal growth. It came as a shock to me when looking at Amazon to see what reader reviews are like, and the book in question was described as Kindle County book number nine, because I never thought I was writing a series. My goal after Presumed Innocent was not to try to rewrite Presumed Innocent, because I had waited a long time for any form of literary success, I see myself as straddling the stools between the literary novel and the pure mystery. One of the hallmarks of literary work is an element of psychological realism and character development and even growth. Um, Doesn't necessarily have to be a moral deepening that takes place with the character. But as you point out, they do have to learn something along the way, or occasionally, as in Stendhal, you realize this guy's never going to learn anything. And that's the magnificent takeaway of The Red and the Black. That's definitely what I'm trying to do. Usually, my characters come away disappointed to some extent. Generally, what has been revealed to them through the course of the so-called mystery is something that leaves them older but wiser, but not necessarily more cheerful or optimistic. How does a mystery writer do his craft? Is there a lot of outlining, or do you just come up with a concept and then go back and layer in a bunch of clues? For the first several months to a year, I work on it. You know, the traditional elements of the novel, particularly character 
and setting and figuring out the interrelationships between the characters and who these people are in psychological terms, trying to get a thorough sense of the imagined world. The hairpin turns come somewhat intuitively. And there is a point in that process where I will say to myself, well, this is all very interesting, but who in the hell killed her? And I will have to figure that out. And I always want the answer to that question to be organic to the world that I've already made so that I don't have to come in with a deus ex machina at the end. I want it to flow from the character relationships, which both makes it believable when it's revealed and unpredictable from the start. Now, leaving enough breadcrumbs but hiding them is really important. You do want the surprises to be real surprises. And some of them come in the course of imagining who these people are. The novel I'm writing now, a character in a love relationship, it's always the case that you're discovering who that person is as the years go on. So, yes, is that going to be a shocking development in the middle of the novel when the main character, Rusty Savage, discovers something about this woman he's been living with? And because it's shocking to him, it's also going to be shocking to the reader. It's really organic to the plot and the world and understanding who this woman is and has been and how these things happened. Your interest in literature and literary theory begins before you go to law school. You go to Harvard Law, join the prosecutor's office, and then move to criminal defense. You're exposed to a whole new realm, the underworld, cops, prosecutors, judges, and courts. I don't know anything about this world, and neither does most of your audience. You also keep learning. You find out about new methods and evidentiary practices. And then I imagine that you have this aha moment where you say, I can't wait to apply this new method to my next literary work. Tell me about that. The best example is that at one point in Suspect, there is DNA evidence extracted from a mosquito found at the crime scene. This was the idea of my wife, Adrian, whom Larry knows well. And it was a way to embroider upon the increasing relevance of DNA. When I started out as a prosecutor, there was no DNA. And I often point out to people, if Rusty Savage were tried for the crime in presumed innocent in the era of DNA, they would just have backed up the jail van and taken him out of the court because the case would have been largely hopeless against him. DNA and the growth and the understanding of human biology and the way that that's been married into the laws always interesting to me just because it's always so much more than I know. Adrian's idea was, you know, what if they actually got this DNA out of a mosquito and you could sort of prove that the mosquito was related to who was at the crime scene. And I thought that was just a brilliant idea. And Adrian is so proud 
the fact that the mosquito is on the cover of the British paperback of Suspect. Suspect has had just a delirious reception in the UK, where it's been named one of the best or the best book of the year by various journalists. You make this book, this work of art, and you give it to the world, and then it takes on a life of its own. The graphic designers who make these book covers, it might get made into a movie and teams of people get involved, screenwriters, directors, producers, and actors. And then for the book, there's a marketing team too. Then there are foreign translations of the book. So many people are involved from the genesis of your creative process. It's mind-boggling. The most dramatic instance of this is standing on a film set. You look around and there's 200 people at work and you realize what they are working on is bringing to real life something that started out in your imagination. That's a great thrill. And, you know, the film aspect is most tangible one and suspect has also been optioned. You're right to focus on the publishing side because people don't understand how dependent the author is on many other people. They do think about editors and agents, but marketing is incredibly important. My publisher, Grand Central, is non-parel in their ability to sell books. People have no idea that far and away, the most important ingredient of being a bestseller is getting the book into the stores where it can be bought. And yes, of course, Amazon has its own mechanics. And believe me, the publishers pay Amazon for book placement. Why should you go with a publisher who's got an established record of best-selling books? And the answer is because the booksellers, when those salespeople come in, are happy to see them because they're making a living off of the fact that these salespeople are constantly putting in their hands books that sell. And so it's an enormous advantage to publish with a company that has a track record of being one of the champions in getting books sold, ultimately. There's people who handle the social media and people who do advertising, everything from the New York subways in particular, to the little film snippets that are going to appear on Instagram or Facebook. And it's a big team. It really is. Believe me when I say I'm grateful to every single one of them. And it takes a lot of very competent people to make a book a success. I went into an independent bookstore the other day in Coconut Grove. It was the first time I'd been in a bookstore probably in at least a year. Was it books and books? Yeah, it was books and books. I walked around and there was a big sign that said, support your independent bookseller. And then I looked around and I was actually surprised how few books were in the entire bookstore. I found four books that I wanted to buy. And I thought to myself that I would really prefer the Kindle version to the physical books. So in a moment of weakness, I bought all four eBooks from Amazon and then walked out, not compensating the independent bookstore a penny. But what can I do? I do prefer ebooks. I do think that the independent bookseller provides a service, but I don't know what to do about it. Books and Books is owned by Mitchell Kaplan, is one of the great 
independent bookstores in the country. Mitchell, on top of running a very successful conglomerate of bookstores in the Miami area, is the empresario of the Miami Book Fair, which is a great event every November on the streets of Miami. This is what has killed independent bookstores, what you just did. And yes, they will sell to you online. When I'm going to buy a physical book, I try to buy it online. But, you know, I am like you. We live in Florida, spend time in Chicago, we spend time in southern Wisconsin. You've visited us in these places. And, you know, to be running around trying to find where did I put that book as opposed to my iPad is much harder. So I am inclined to read on the screen. The two of us were playing golf this summer when you finished Suspect, and you said that now you had to go on the road to market your book at bookstores and other locales. This seems so inefficient. Why not use social media, radio, and podcasting as a better way to leverage yourself to market your book? The bookstores tour seems so 1990. I was out on tour in a relatively unpromising environment, which is you go to a city, you do some local publicity, sometimes a newspaper reporter, sometimes somebody from a website will show up to interview you. The best, of course, is when you do radio interviews. I did what's called a radio tour right before I hit the road and made appearances by satellite link on 20 radio shows across the country. The booksellers said repeatedly, wherever I went, I'm going to sell your book online. That's where all these orders are going to come in. And your being in the store is an opportunity to video you and put it up on the website and use that as a prop to engage sellers. You know, you may sell 50 copies in the store, but and this was a real estimate by a bookseller. I'm going to sell 1500 copies online in the next couple of weeks. Well, that's really new. That didn't exist with the last book I published. And so when you deliver the author, hopefully raise a crowd for the store, people come in they're waiting for the author to appear. They go around the store. They pick up two or three other books. And so the bookseller is really happy to have foot traffic in the store. And so you're being delivered to the store as a kind of premium, like the toy in the Cracker Jack box. It's not necessarily to sell your book as much as to prop up the relationship between the publisher and the bookseller. That's a fact of the business. But I don't know whether touring is going to continue or not. Even when people were standing in line for two hours, you know, to buy copies of Presumed Innocent and have me sign them. I've never really been convinced that touring was that beneficial. A lot of it has to do with the ancillary benefit to the publisher. I got to believe that word of mouth is number one. Absolutely. And how you create that today of course, is on social media. I just have not been able to get it together to maintain the kind of hectic social media presence that some people do. They're going to put up every day and 
Facebook and they're going to tweet about it, younger novelists who are all describing the pressure that their publishers put on them to spend an hour a day on social media. Well, that's an hour a day that literally comes out of writing time. Everybody's doing it. So I'm not positive that it works. Certainly, it's a great thing to have a million Facebook followers. That's terrific. But I don't know when it's measured in the low thousands if it makes any difference. What does it mean that you feel pressure from your audience, most of whom you'll never meet? This is a rich and complicated question as far as I am concerned, because you can get straightjacketed creatively if I was writing every book about the same protagonist. They can't be as deep as they are when you're writing about new characters or even the same character 15 years later when they're, to some extent, a different person. I've always sort of tried to keep the expectations of the audience in mind, but not be governed by them. And that's tricky. I remember I was publishing my third novel, which I thought of as being kind of a comic novel and different from what I had done in the first two books. I remember my agent talking to one of the editors around the world, and she asked him, how do you feel if Scott writes this very different book? And he basically came back with this line, and I don't know whether Hemingway or Graham Greene said it, but that all authors really write just one book anyway. I know that a popular interpretation of what I'm doing is that I write courtroom scenes because that's my brand. But the fact of the matter is that what happens in court is so deeply burned into me from my years as a trial lawyer that there's an incredible drama there that I understand, a subtext to what's going on, and a kind of richness to the representation of reality that's taking place in the courtroom that I just never tire of. I'm going to be writing in this book about what I think of as a different kind of courtroom venue in the sense that it's small town, not big city. And the cast of characters will be different than what I've typically written about. But the dramatic process of confrontation and discovery in the courtroom, which has been the engine for many of my novels, is the same. I don't feel straightjacketed by that. It's what I know how to do, what I think. I'm good at, but most significantly, it's the engine for the literary revelation that I want to produce that is important to the literature that I write. I've been a member of your audience for 35 years. I read your book 1L when I was thinking about going to law school after college. And then I read Presumed Innocent in a single sitting after it came out in the late 1980s. It was a real treat to meet you when I joined the same country club as you, I don't know what I expected when I met you, but when your audience does get to meet you in person, they must have certain expectations. How do you interact with interested fans? You know, I don't know that much about the expectations that people are bringing. Occasionally, there's someone who bursts out with, God, I thought you were a lot taller. I'm one of those people. (laughs) But generally speaking, people don't voice those expectations. It's weird for me, that people seem thrilled to meet me 
one of the things that happened on book tour, I was in Phoenix and there was a guy who proceeded to show me a photograph of the wall of Scott Turow novels that he had. And he had flown in from Virginia just to be at this book event. The book is both of you and beyond you. It's something you've put into the world. You no longer have the intense, intimate connection you have with the book as it's being written. Very often people will ask me about something in one of the novels, and I'll just have to say, I don't really remember anymore. You know, I just try to be who I am when I'm reading people. I don't have a persona that some authors like to assume. I don't need to put on my cowboy hat and my fringe coat before I make my public appearances. I remember when I was in college reading essays by both Saul Bellow and Philip Roth in which they were arguing that authors shouldn't waste their time meeting the public. It's been detrimental to those authors who are not great in public. I think of Ann Tyler still as one of the best living American novelists, but she is terminally shy and she's never been able to tour. And that clearly has come at some detriment to her sales. She's a great writer. What about J.D. Salinger, who hid from the public? What about J.D. Salinger? It worked for him at the time. And part of it worked because of the mystery of who he was. Very hard to do that today. Either you're available for interview or you're not. It might still work for Elena Ferrante, who wrote this magnificent quartet of novels. Nobody knows who Elena Ferrante is. It's a pseudonym. There's a lot of speculation. Some people think that her husband, who grew up in Naples, had some part in writing it. One of the Italian journals thought they had outed her, although I'm not positive that they were correct anyway. It was, so occasionally there's that kind of mystery about who's actually behind the books. But authors are now expected to be known. And I have found one of the great privileges of my life is getting to know other authors. Sometimes the old saying is true that, you know, writers are better read than met. For the most part, I have not found that to be true at all. And like the other members of this rock band that Dave Barry and Dave and his wife, Michelle, are dear friends of ours. And Stephen King is amazing company. Tabby, his wife, is even funnier than he is. And knowing authors has just been one of the greatest privileges of the life that I've had. I was reading your Wikipedia page, and it says that you sold over 30 million books. Does this blow your mind? I try not to think about it or get invested in it. It's just like Hollywood. I have never, ever looked at my Wikipedia entry. Oh, you'd be shocked. It has the year that you were born. I might be, but it's like, I'm not going there. Same way I've never Googled Scott Turo. I don't want to become overly invested in my public persona. 
you know, it's why I've never moved to Hollywood. I like the life I have. And, you know, I know who I am. I see myself first as a father and a husband. Those are the most important things in my life. And I love writing. I love the excitement that I've been feeling working on this new novel and feeling this creative world come into being, figuring out the turns and the depth of the characters and then getting it on the page and seeing the way that it's marching along. That's what I want to be doing rather than trying to build an audience on social media. At the end of the day, the books are there. I've been lucky enough to have the kind of success that I've had. I always say that all writers are contemporary writers, whether we're talking about Shakespeare or somebody alive today. They are read because of their continuing relevance to the audience that's alive in the present tense. You can't control that because of our inability to actually fully anticipate the future. Tell us about the editing process. Is this where the magic happens? I've had a wonderful relationship with the three editors who have worked on my novels. Uh, my longest relationship was with Jonathan Galassi, who was the publisher at Ferris, Strauss, and Giroux, and with Deb Futter and then Ben Sevier at Grand Central. Jonathan and I would meet at the Lowell Hotel in New York and sit in a suite. And Jonathan would literally go over every page in the first draft that I had sent him and free associate and say things like, I read that paragraph and it's such a beautiful paragraph, but then I got to this word and I really think you need to rethink this word. And this is such a great scene, but I'm still not sure I fully know what's happening to her in this scene. And I wasn't really understanding your main character at this moment. That was magical, in part because he's such a brilliant guy. And it was just wonderful to have the intense light of his huge intelligence focused on what I had written. And it 100% made every book better. Um, nobody has time for that. Jonathan eventually stopped having time for it. He went from being responsible for his line of authors to the entire house. Nobody has time to edit that way anymore. You even hear about authors who hire outside editors because they can't get enough attention from the people who are supposed to be editing their books. I've always found the input of my editors really worthwhile. What about your rewrite process? When I visited the J.P. Morgan Library in New York, they have exhibits of the original drafts of famous works by Hemingway and Fitzgerald and others. You see the first type draft, and then you'll see the most incredibly extensive rewrite imaginable. Now we have Microsoft Word since the late 80s. How has this computer program changed the rewrite process? I would not be having this conversation if you were it not for the invention of the word processor, because I started out writing by hand on the morning commuter trip. And I just didn't have time to write in sequence because I wanted to get onto the page whatever was burning with me that day. 
And so I'd be creating scenes in the book that eventually became Presumed Innocent that were largely based on some transmogrification of what I'd been feeling in my world as a prosecutor. And it resulted in passages that would ultimately appear all over the book. I never had any idea how I was going to put that together until the PC was invented. So that's always been really important to my process. And I still write the same way with little passages coming to me and I write them out. They're generally either under the character's name or sometimes they're thematic. Then I've got to weave it all together. Once I submit a first draft these days, I am on a production schedule. I still do a lot of rewriting. There are usually four or five of them. And the differences are not always as dramatic as what you're talking about with Hemingway and Fitzgerald. A lot of that has taken place before the first draft ever gets to New York. The point that I'm at right now, creating that world, getting things down on paper, I can still go ahead and say, now this character isn't working. And you can literally look through the draft in these early stages and see me changing my mind about characters or plot. Sometimes I'll just type out no and keep going rather than erasing. Once I send the first draft to New York, I'm on a train with limited ability to change things after that. What are you optimistic about your craft, the novel, mysteries, and the literary world? Well, it's less diverse because of the concentration of publishing. And I lament that because there are inevitably voices that are just not being recognized. Maybe somebody who would be the next Shakespeare is never going to get the chance to get off the ground. But the other side of this, there are a lot of really good books being written. And more than I can read, there's still a lot of wonderful writers who are finding enough support in the literary environment that they're able to continue. What do you think of audiobooks, especially for your work? People are tell me sort of apologetically, well, you know, I listen to your book in the car. I'm always at pains to point out to them that if you are lucky, if you grow up in a blessed environment, your first experience of literature is having it read to you. And that is how you first come to appreciate it. And what happens later is just a translation of the skills that you've developed as a child listening to books being read to you. You become eventually the person who reads them to themselves. You know, I spent right before we came back to Florida, just a fabulous hour with my granddaughter in Evanston, reading to her. And she sort of sagged against me. For me, it was an incredible intimate moment, with this effervescent child. And, you know, maybe she'll remember, maybe she won't. I always will. Audiobooks rock. And I remember a couple of years ago, I decided I was going to actually read War and Peace. I was going to go all the way through it. I listened when I was exercising. I listened in the car. I read at night. 
and I got through it. But very often these days now, I'll be both reading and listening. That's a great way to experience a book, I think. Thanks to Scott for joining us today. If you missed last week's show, check it out. It's on how to get your kid a job. We had two speakers, Lauren Rivera, who is a managed professor at Northwestern's Kellogg School, and the author of Pedigree, How Elite Students Get Elite Jobs. Our second speaker was Beth Henler-Grunt, who is the author of The Next Great Step, The Parent's Guide to Launching Our New Grad into a Career, and she is a career advisor. I have a junior and senior in college right now, and getting that first job is a big topic in the Bernstein family household, so I thought it was an important topic to discuss. I would like to make a plug for next week's program. The topic is pickleball. This is the hottest new sport. Player enthusiasm is off the charts. A few blocks from my house in Miami Beach, four rural used tennis courts were repurposed into 12 pickleball courts, and the place is a zoo. It is teeming with players from dawn till dusk. My guest would be one of my best friends, Steve Kuhn, who founded the new Major League Pickleball. And you know the one where Tom Brady and LeBron are team owners? Steve is incredibly creative and highly excitable. You're going to love hearing from him about this new pickleball phenomena. You can find our previous episodes and transcripts on our website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com. Please encourage your friends to join the What Happens Next community by signing up for our weekly updates about upcoming podcasts. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. I would like to thank our audience for your continued engagement with these important issues. Goodbye.